Father, as we contemplate this most essential topic called the seal of God, may we learn how to possess it. And Lord, I'm thankful for each one that has come this morning, as well as for those who are unable to make it for whatever reason. I pray that we may not lose the effect of what the purpose of this conference was, and that we may leave this place different, changed, transformed with the mind of Christ within us. So teach us now by thy spirit in this early morning air. May we breathe in the spirit of Christ. May we read his word, and may we be, be blessed and refreshed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 as we begin our study on the seal of God. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four what? four winds, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Couple things to notice here. The winds, there are four winds, and four angels are standing on the four corners of the earth holding these four winds. And according to these verses that we have read, when those winds are let go, what do they do upon the earth? It says to hurt the earth. So are these winds of construction or winds of destruction? Winds of destruction or winds of strife, we call them. And I'll just say this, this letting go of the winds is synonymous with the troubles at the end of time. Or the time of trouble is another term that we use. And what is the only thing, according to these pa this passage here, what is the only thing that is preventing those winds, those winds of strife, the troubles from being unleashed on the earth? What, is being, what are we waiting for? It is the sealing. So once God's people, here known as the servants of our, our God, servants of the living God, or the 144,000, once they are sealed, then what will come immediately following? The time of trouble, the winds of strife. And after the time of trouble, from our understanding of the final events, what, once the time of trouble begins, an irreversible sequence of events transpires, right? And it culminates in what event? The second coming. So in other words, this is the gate. There's a gate that is holding back the flood of final events, which includes, of course, 
the four winds being let go. But once the four winds are let go, is there any possibility to hold them back? Once the final events begin to transpire, we know that the final events will be rapid ones and it will culminate in the second coming. So you see, the seal of God now is that gate. The sealing of God's people is that event that is holding back the winds. And until that sealing is completed, the final events will not continue. You follow my line of logic. So isn't it important for us then to understand what it means to be sealed? Because we want to be sealed. And we know that until the sealing takes place, Jesus cannot come. All right. So what does it mean to be sealed? Now, if you have done any study of this concept in the spirit of prophecy, you will know that Mrs. White says several things. What have we usually, you know, when we go to an evangelistic meeting and uh, we, we hear the sermon on the seal of God, where in the Ten Commandments do we find the seal of God? The fourth commandment. It contains the name, the ruler, dominion, all the ne necessary components of a seal of an authority, you know, an individual with authority. And that is true, and we're going to come to that in a moment. But let's look at a couple passages from the Spirit of Prophecy first. Uh, many, 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 uh, except, I guess, let me check here, all but two, excuse me, all but three passages that I'll be sharing with you are found in the book Last Day Events, page 219 to 221, 222 or so. So that's the section that a lot of these verse or passages just condensed into, just for your information. So this first passage from Last Day Events, page 219, paragraph 4. It says, just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Indeed, it has begun already. Last day events, that's page 219. So there's a little insertion in the middle of this thought here where Mrs. White defines what the seal of God is, at least one of the definitions. She says it is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but what is it? A settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. There are three parts I see to this definition. First, there is a settling into truth. Settling. What does that bring to mind? What kind of mental picture? You know, to me, it's a glass of dirty water. You shake it up, or you, you sprinkle the dirt in and it's sort of mixed in. What is required for things to settle? Time. That very one word, settling into the truth. It doesn't necessarily say ironed into the truth, or dropped into the truth or welded into the truth. It's not an instantaneous event. We see that. 
Secondly, both intellectually and spiritually, there's more than just a knowledge involved. Intellectually, yes, there is a thorough understanding of the truth, yes, but spiritually settled into the truth. There's a spiritual component, there's a deeper component. Maybe we'll come to that in a moment. The third part, it says, so they cannot be moved. This one is going to be tricky. God says they are sealed. The seal represents a such steadfast, firm roots or being cemented into the truth so that they can't be moved. We're going to think about these three aspects. But let's go back to the first two parts of this definition, settling into the truth intellectually and spiritually. Let's look at a Bible verse I believe corresponds to this, found in Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, let's look at verses 16 and 17. Before we read this, this passage is actually quoted from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah chapter 31. So this is the New Covenant, and we find it in the Old Testament. That's an interesting thought for your contemplation. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their where? Hearts, and in their where? Minds will I write them. Verse 17, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. All right. What is the new covenant here according to this verse 16? What does God promise to do? He will write His law, His law of truth, right? Where will He write them? In two places. In our hearts and in our minds. Would it be fair to say that the mind represents the intellect? And the heart represents, yes, the feelings, emotions, but the, the center of the spirit of man, the spiritual side. Settling into the truth. Where? In our hearts and in our minds. Intellectually and spiritually. But notice who does the writing of the law. God does it. Very good. But let's come, come to verse 17 for a moment. And it says, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This verse right here in our study, I don't have time to go through all of the particulars, but it is actually describing a particular time, a particular period in sacred history or in the great controversy. Let me put it this way. If we were to ask God right now, do you remember my sins and my iniquities? Does God remember them? Oh, yeah. I mean, think about, think about it this way. Do you remember sins that you've committed in your life? Sins even that you've asked for forgiveness for? Yes. So how would it be possible for God not to remember our sins if we still remember right now? You follow my drift. But there is a time 
There is a time in which God Himself will no longer remember our sins and iniquities. When is that time? In the judgment, there are three books. There's the book of life, the book of record, and the book of remembrance. The book of record, Mrs. White, if you study the super prophecy, calls it many things. Book of death, book of sin, book of record. Recounting, it records the sins of God's people. And I'm not going to go into all of the details, but at the close of probation, or right before the close of probation, right before the judgment is over, God does something to the sins of His people whose names are, remain in the book of life. What does He do? He blots them out. God blots out their sins. And He says, I will remember their sins no more. And if you read in the Great Controversy, God's people, when they go through the time of trouble, they feel as though they are helpless. They feel as though they have no I mean, it is true. They have no mediator in heaven at that point. And they feel as though they have sinned so egregiously against God that they can't possibly be saved and that God is their avenging enemy. And they try to confess their sins, but we are told that they cannot bring them to remembrance. Oh, I can't wait for that day. I don't look forward to the troubles, of course, upon God's people, but I cannot wait for the day when I can't remember my sins. So when is it that God says, I will remember their sins and iniquities no more? It is when the sins are blotted out. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 says, And at that time Michael shall stand up, representing the close of probation, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. So hopefully, I know I'm sort of just skipping over things here and there. There are a lot of gaps in my explanation. But go home, study the investigative judgment, close of probation, Fill in those gaps. We don't have time right now. What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that God, before He can close the judgment, before He can blot out our sins, He's got to do something for His people. And that is, He's got to write their law, His law in our hearts and our minds. Because when probation closes, the time of trouble begins, the four winds are let go. Okay? So how is God actually written, how is God's law actually written in our Minds. Okay, let's talk about our mind first. Because he writes them in our minds and in our hearts. Two different places. And perhaps I'm trying to split hairs here, but I think if you follow through with me, it'll make sense. Does God write his law in our hearts in an instantaneous, miraculous fashion, and then ever after we never sin again? It requires something, doesn't it? It requires our choice, the freedom of, you know, our, our will to be aligned to His side. How does He take us through this process of having so, been so settled into His truth that we will not be moved or we cannot be moved? How is that done? Okay, uh, you know, I'm going to share with you an analogy, an illustration. And as with all analogies, they break down after a while. There's no perfect analogy. You understand that, okay. So I'm going to try my best. And hopefully, it helps us understand how God actually writes His law in our hearts, or in our minds. I like to use the illustration of brushing our teeth. When we are a little kid, what does it take for us to brush our teeth? It takes a whole lot of effort, doesn't it? A whole lot of external effort. 
Our parents have to come and stand next to us and teach us how to do it. They might have to hold our hands. They might have to model for us. They might have to do it several times before we get it. But if that child says, I don't want to brush my teeth, what is, mom, what is mom's response going to be? You just have to do it. <laughs> is there any need at that stage for reasoning with the child? You know, explaining the physiology of cavities and, and all of that kind of thing? No, you just say, do it. Obey even without the reasons, okay? But when that child grows a little bit older, he learns how to hold the toothbrush by himself, he's tall enough to reach the sink, he may e eat his meal and he's about to sneak out the back door, but mom says, remember what you have to do. <sighs> okay, I'll go brush my teeth. <laughs> At that point, that young man, why does he brush his teeth? It is because his mom told him to do it. It's still an external force, external reasons. He wouldn't do it if he had the choice, but mom is there to get up, keep him in line. But this young man, he continues to grow up, and it comes to a point where he starts brushing his teeth. But he's in school. He's with all his friends. And why does he brush his teeth then? Because he doesn't want to look bad. He doesn't want to have bad breath. And so the, the motivation for brushing his teeth is now internal, but the reasoning is still a little bit faulty. Doing it because other people are watching. But if he didn't have to be around his friends, if he was just at home on break, yeah, maybe not brush my teeth every day. But as he grows a little bit older, he takes some health classes, he learns a few things, he has his first cavity, and he realizes, I need to brush my teeth because there are adverse effects on my health if I don't do it. Is that a little bit better of a reason to brush our teeth? Okay. And then he grows up, and then now he's in college or whatever, and now, if he doesn't brush his teeth after every meal, he feels horrible. He feels guilty, if you will. <laughs> oh, I didn't brush my teeth. I can't believe it. And it just is on his mind. I can't believe I didn't brush my teeth. I feel nasty. It's just, oh, I, I have to. I have to. And he rushes home. He brings his toothbrush. Then he carries his toothbrush and toothpaste everywhere he goes. <laughs> he begins to... Enjoy it! <laughs> and of course, analogies start breaking down after a certain point. This is where it starts breaking down. And then he might even choose a life career as a dentist or a dental hygienist. <laughs> so he can help other people learn how to brush their teeth. And this is where it really breaks down. If we were to take the spiritual application to his logical conclusion, it comes to a point where he would rather die than not brush his teeth. <laughs> but does that, you see a connection with the spiritual aspect of obeying God. 
God takes us step by step. He doesn't just, we don't have to know all the reasons right off the bat. I don't know all the reasons why I obey God. There are still certain things I do that I'm sort of like, you know, I really would like to know why. But as we continue to obey, the reasons come. And more than that, as we make the small decisions, small commitments here and there, the intellectual, willful choice to obey step by step by step by step, eventually there is a time. And we're going to read a quote in just a moment that talks about this. That it becomes our natural response, our reflex, our instinct to do God's will. And God can do that for us. That's what it means to have the law written in our hearts and in our minds. Excuse me, in our minds specifically. It creates those grooves in our brains. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a neurologist or anything, psychologist, anything of that sort. But I do know what it, how it is to have habits. And we can be habitual obeyers of God's law. And habits don't come overnight. And it does take effort. All right. So what does it mean for God's law to be written in our hearts? It can be written in our minds. Yes, we can actually learn to, spiritually speaking, brush our teeth. And we may be able to do it in our own strength. And I say that hesitantly, even with the risk of being misunderstood. It is possible for people to force themselves from not committing adultery. There are people that don't believe in Jesus that don't commit adultery. There are people that don't believe in Jesus that never kill. There are people that don't believe in Jesus that can keep their hands to themselves and not steal. But I will submit that it is not possible. It is not possible for us, even if we are able to stop killing, for us to learn to love our enemies. It is not possible for us not only to withhold our lips from speaking lies, but to rejoice in the truth and to love it. And to have the feelings of Christ. This, this weekend, we've been talking about the mind of Christ, the humility of Christ. Let me tell you something. Humility cannot be manufactured. Absolutely cannot. You can't fake it. I mean, you can try. But humility at its very, very core is an issue of the heart. And that's what it means when God says, I will write my law in their minds and in their hearts. Because there are certain aspects of our, our nature that we cannot change. Even if we try and we develop habits, it requires the grace of God. And Jesus has to do that for us. So here's that quote that I talked about it, that I talked about earlier. This is one of the ones that are not found in Last Day Events. It's found in Desire of Ages. Page 668. It says, All true obedience comes from the heart. And that ties in directly with what we've been just talking about. 
we can have the actions of not breaking any of the Ten Commandments, but in obeying the spirit of the law, it's got to come from the heart. And the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God can change our hearts. And it says, it was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, this is where the will comes in. If we consent, He will so identify Himself with our thoughts and aims. So blend our hearts and minds into conformity to His will. Notice what it says, that when obeying Him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing His service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. The hatred towards sin cannot be manufactured. It has to come from God because we are carnal, sold into sin. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And so, yes, writing the law in our minds, intellectually, we might know it. We might even force our hands to carry out the activities and actions. But Jesus has to change our hearts. And He promises to do that. That is a new covenant. And He will do that before the close of probation. So this is what it means to be sealed. Settling into the truth both spiritually, intellectually, and spiritually, in our minds and in our hearts, God writing the law in our hearts and in our minds so that we cannot be moved. So that we cannot be moved in one sense is the understanding that even when we carry out our own impulses, our reflexes when something goes wrong will be so aligned with the mind of Christ that we will still be obeying Him. Without thinking, that's the point. Without thinking. Oh, I want to come to that point. And I'm not there. But I want to be there. So this is what it means. This is God reprogramming our hearts and our minds. Reprogramming our thoughts as well as our feelings. And the thoughts and the feelings put together, they create what? moral character and the law that is written in our hearts and in our minds, the law is also known as the transcript of God's what? Character. So, having the law in our hearts and minds, is that not synonymous with having the character of God? This takes us to the next point from the Spirit of Prophecy. God's Amazing Grace, page 235. What beauty of character shown forth in the daily life of Christ? He is to be our pattern. There is a great work to be done in fashioning the character after the divine similitude. The grace of Christ must mold the entire being, and its triumph will not be complete until the heavenly universe shall witness the habitual tenderness of feeling, Christ-like love, and holy deeds in the deportment of the children of God. All right, now, Last Day Events, page 221. There are actually three different paragraphs here, but they're all on that page. 
It says, the first one, the seal of the living God will be placed upon those only who bear a likeness to Christ in character. Caught that. Second one, those who receive the seal of the living God and are protected in the time of trouble must reflect the image of Jesus fully. Third one, are we striving with all our God-given powers to reach the measure of the stature of men and women in Christ? Are we seeking for His fullness, ever reaching higher and higher, trying to attain to the perfection of His character? When God's servants reach this point, they will be sealed in their foreheads. The recording angel will declare, it is done. They will be complete in Him whose they are by creation and by redemption. So the second definition that the Spirit of Prophecy gives for the sealing, the seal of God is to have Christ's character perfectly reproduced in His people. We talked about that yesterday. And it is actually synonymous with the idea of having the, or being settled into the truth both spiritually and intellectually so that we cannot be moved. Because that's how Christ's character was. He was settled into the truth, intellectually and spiritually, so that He could not be moved. The character of Christ. The mind of Christ. Okay. So we see now that the first two definitions, in fact, they're quite synonymous. We can see how they go hand in hand. Now, God, in putting a seal, seal of approval, FDA approved, whatever you want to call it, God is saying that this group of individuals, it says they cannot be moved. They're so settled into the truth that they cannot be moved. Now, that's a pretty, that's a challenge. Now, what would you think if you were Satan? You know, understand, with our understanding of the great controversy, Satan with his, you know, he's got a bone to pick with God's law and his character and all of this kind of thing. And God here is saying, these are the servants of the living God. They have the seal of God and they can't be moved. If you were Satan, what would you say? Prove it. In fact, there's a story in the Bible that God did something exactly like that. Job, has thou considered my servant Job? A perfect and an upright man that escheweth evil? Satan says, I don't think so. So what must be permitted to come upon the 144,000, the servants of the living God, the people who are sealed? What must be allowed to come upon them in order for God to be proven right in this case, that they cannot be moved? They've got to be tested. That makes sense. God puts someone here, he's standing on a little pedestal, and God says, he can't be moved. So what are we going to do? We're going to try to move him. He's standing on a little pedestal, we're going to come and we're going to shove him, see if he's going to push, get pushed off. So how does Satan come to, to test? What, in the end of time, what is the issue that is going to try God's people to demonstrate whether or not they truly, genuinely cannot be moved? What is that issue? The mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast is a test in the area of the Sabbath. Ah. So... The Sabbath is the seal of God. Yes, it is. But in one sense only. Let, let's think about this. All right. Let's look at a few verses or passages from uh, Last Day Events. This is page 220. 
The seal of the living God is placed upon those who conscientiously keep the Sabbath of the Lord. Those who would have the seal of God in their foreheads must keep the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment alone of all the ten contains a seal of the great lawgiver, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We're all together so far. Notice this last passage. Last day events, page 220. The observance of the Lord's memorial, the Sabbath instituted in Eden, the seventh day Sabbath, is the test of our loyalty to God. The Sabbath is the seal of God in the sense that it is the pressure point in the last days. It is that area in which we will be tested in the last days. And isn't God good that He's already told us where the pressure and test is going to come? I mean, it's like having the answer sheet for the final exam. We already know. But here's the point. The issue is not simply the Sabbath. The Sabbath is only that one area where Satan focuses attack to see if we obey God in every other area. So when people say, oh, I'll get ready when the Sunday law comes, they're missing the point because the seal of God is not just whether I go to church on Sabbath or not. It's not whether or not I'm willing to die for the Sabbath even. The seal of God has to do with our whole character. And at the end of time, those who keep the law of God, keep the law of God, will obey the Sabbath only as a revelation that they obey God in every other area. It is an issue of character. And when we say, or when we hear people say, I'll wait until the Sunday law to get ready, the problem is character is not developed overnight. And when the test comes, we will realize only too late that I was waiting only for the test in this one area, but I have failed in all the other areas of my life. We don't want to miss the point. It's greater than just a day of worship. It's greater than just one out of ten commandments. It's all the commandments. It's all of God's will. It's all of the character. It's the law written in our hearts and in our minds. All right, we are about to close. And I want to end with a challenging passage from the book Early Writings. Early Writings, if you haven't read that book, you owe it to yourself to read that book. It is, uh, this is a vision that Ellen White had on J January 5, 1849. Remember that date. What was the date? January 5, 1849, the book Early Writings, page 38. She writes, I saw four angels who had a work to do on the earth and were on their way to accomplish it. Jesus was clothed with priestly garments. He gazed in pity on the remnant, then raised his hands and with a voice of deep pity cried, My blood, Father, my blood, my blood, my blood. Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from God who sat upon the great white throne and was shed all about Jesus. Then I saw an angel with a commission from Jesus swiftly flying to the four angels who had a work to do on the earth. 
and waving something up and down in his hands and crying with a loud voice, Hold! 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 Until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. I asked my accompanying angel the meaning of what I heard and what the four angels were about to do. He said to me that it was God that restrained the powers and that he gave his angels charge over things on the earth, that the four angels had power from God to hold the four winds, and that they were about to let them go. But while their hands were loosening and the four winds were about to blow, the merciful eye of Jesus gazed on the remnant that were not sealed. He raised his hands to the Father and pleaded with him that he has spilled his blood for them. Then another angel was commissioned to fly swiftly to the four angels and bid them hold until the servants of God are sealed with the seal of the living God in their foreheads. When was this written? At least that was when the vision was given, January 5, 1849. And what did she see? The angels were already loosening their grip on the wind. And in mercy for the remnant, Jesus says, give them more time because they're not ready. What does it mean they're not ready? They haven't received the seal of God. What does it mean they haven't received the seal of God? They have not yet settled into the truth intellectually and spiritually so they cannot be moved. They have not fully developed the character of Jesus. How long has it been since 1849? Much longer than I care to count. We are living on borrowed time. And I've said this before this weekend, I will say it again. The mind of Christ, the character of Christ, it's not just a neat saying. It's not just Adventist jargon. It's not just a cliche that we can toss around. It is the sum of the purpose of our existence. And Jesus cannot come until we believe it, until we really believe it. And but I'm so thankful that he doesn't just ask us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. He will write his law in our hearts, in our minds, if we will consent. And I want to let him do that, don't you? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have once again heard your voice speaking to us. As we have read this passage from the spirit of prophecy, wow, you have held the winds for so long. And for us, because we have been unwilling to cooperate. But Lord, I pray that you may help us. Help us to be willing because we cannot even make ourselves be willing. And so, Father, I pray that you would implant within us that enmity against sin that you have promised. That you will write your law in our hearts and in our minds as you have promised. Write the Father's name in our foreheads. Seal us with the seal of the living God. Help us to 
grow into the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ and lead us from this place transformed into your same image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.